I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel, serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Fall is finally here. It is. Very the best time of the year. Uh, we're not quite into October yet. So it's, I mean, it's always spooky season for me, but I thought maybe it would be good to do something that is fall horrific, but not necessarily in the ghosts and gothic things. Right. <laughs> hey, you know what fits the bill? Apples. Apples. So today is an installment of eponymous foods. That is the autumn apple edition. Um, we're going to talk about two different, very popular apples, neither of which is native to the U.S. Both of them were lucky accidents, as many apple varieties are. Both of them have stories which stretch from the early 19th century right up into present day. Just as a level set, in case anybody doesn't remember their fruit tree information. Um, the thing about apples, which came up when we talked about Granny Smith on our first eponymous food episode. Okay, apples can normally only reproduce when they're pollinated by another apple tree, uh, at least in the wild. You can do grafting and, and other types of things in nursery situations. But uh, So when a variety is found that's unique, it has to be manually propagated through grafting or else you're going you're gonna to lose that particular type of apple when that original tree dies. So in both of the stories that we're talking about today, there is one original tree, which I love. So the first apple we're going to talk about is the Bramley apple, and that's the most popular cooking apple in the UK. It's not one that most people would probably enjoy raw because raw, it is very sour, but once it's cooked, it has a light sweetness and an almost fluffy texture. So it's used a lot in dessert baking. Think things like pies, tarts, things like that. You can also use this apple to make ciders and fruit wines. 
Yeah, I've heard some people describe it. I have never cooked with a Bramley. Uh, describe it as becoming almost frothy when you cook mm. it. And I'm like, maybe I should start cooking with Bramleys. Uh, as I mentioned just a moment ago, all Bramley apples can be traced back to one tree. That tree can still be visited today. But we're going to talk about its current status in a moment. Uh, the tree has a very charming beginning because it is said to have been planted by a teenage girl. Sometimes the way this is written about it sounds like she is a child, but if you do the math, she was like 17 or 18 when this happened. That girl, Mary Ann Brailsford, took several apple pips left over from her mother's kitchen cooking and decided to plant them in pots to germinate them and then transplanted the resulting seedlings into the family yard in Southern Nottinghamshire. And the one that became famous grew into a small sapling and then into a tree, which produced apples that cooked up just beautifully. Uh, that tree is a triploid. It has three sets of chromosomes. Triploid plants get some great benefits from their chromosomal structure. They typically are more vigorous growers. They have darker leaves. And in the case of fruit-bearing trees, they often produce more and larger fruit than their counterparts. And that triploid tree was the result of a random cross-pollination. We don't have any idea what varieties were involved to create its uniquely perfect baking apples. As we mentioned, Marianne was young when she planted this tree. Usually this is dated to 1809. Then she grew up and got married and moved away from the house. And in 1846, a butcher named Matthew Bramley bought this property and its apple trees, which at that point were fully mature trees, regularly producing apples. And they were so bountiful that a local nurseryman named Henry Merriweather noticed them and eventually approached Bramley about these trees. Calling Merriweather a nurseryman, that sort of makes it seem like he was an adult. He was actually only 17 at the time, but he knew a lot about plants and agriculture because he worked in his family's nursery from the time he was a young boy. Yeah, I read I read one account that said that he had been working with fruit-growing trees since he was like 10 years old. So there's also a weird side story in one account that he first encountered the apples when like a clergyman was carrying a basket of them and I couldn't find any uh any other um validation of that. So if you see it, maybe, but he did get to the apple tree, which is the important thing. He tasted those apples, and then he asked if he could take a cutting to try to graft it. And Bramley said he could. He gave his consent on one condition. If Merriweather developed the apple variety and started selling it through his nursery, it had to be named the Bramley apple. And Merriweather agreed to those terms and started working with his cuttings. That was in 1856. So Merriweather spent the next several decades working with the fruit. As he noted, he, quote, worked all the plants I had room for, and by degrees, I had a fine stock of young plants. As a side note, Mary Brailsford had died four years before Merriweather and Bramley met, so she never knew the fame her little tree would achieve. In 1862, Henry sold his first Bramley apples to a customer, Sales records indicate that he sold three fruit for two shillings on October 31st of that year. That sale was to a Mr. George Cooper of Upton Hall. Two of the grafted trees Merriweather had developed were sold to another gardener in 1865. In December of 1876, so a little bit later, Henry Merriweather showed his apples to the Royal Horticultural Society for the first time. 
They received a rating of highly commended and then later were given the rating of first class. At some point in the early 1900s, the Bramley tree was struck by lightning. By some accounts, it was actually knocked down, but it rerouted itself and survived the ordeal. The Bramley apple had become so popular that by 1924, an estimated 80% of the apples grown in Kent were Bramleys. In the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st, a woman named Nancy Harrison became the tree's guardian. She bought the two cottages and property at auction in the 1960s. Mary lived on the property in what became known as the Bramley Treehouse, or the adjacent cottage, for the rest of her life. Yeah, some accounts put her in just one of the cottages, and some say she moved. So I'm not clear on that, just FYI. In the early 1990s, the tree's age was really beginning to show. It also had developed honey fungus. So this is a blanket name for several types of armillaria fungus that destroy woody and perennial plants from the root. So it displays as a white fungal growth that appears between the wood and its bark. It sort of separates the two and causes problems. Sometimes trees that are infected with this will grow mushrooms, typically in the autumn. The upper parts of the plant may die, and the leaves that it will produce, if it does continue to, will be smaller than normal. They also turn kind of a yellowy or pale green color. Underground, the roots are slowly rotting from this fungus. And treatment options are not very good. There is no way to get rid of honey fungus. Normally, if a plant or tree has it, the course of action would be to dig it up and burn it so that that fungus won't spread. But no one wants to destroy the Bramley tree. Biologists from the University of Nottingham stepped in. And in addition to providing supportive care for this tree to keep it alive as long as possible, They also undertook a project to clone it that was supervised by Professor Ted Cocking and Dr. Brian Power of the School of Biology. In an article the university released in 2009, they described this process, quote, shoot tips were taken from the original Bramley tree in the spring of 1990. These were cut into smaller pieces and treated to eliminate all bacteria, fungi, and fungal spores, which are always present, particularly in an old tree like the original Bramley. The inactive leaf buds were then removed and placed in a liquid nutrient growth medium, changing to fresh medium every four weeks. When the individual roots reached three centimeters, they were ready for rooting in a new growth medium, These rooted clones were then transferred to soil in a mist propagator and then to an open glass house. The paper explained that rooted clones versus grafts can grow quickly and reach a height of six to eight feet in a couple of years. There are 12 Bramley clones that are part of the University Park Millennium Garden, and there are always shoots being cultivated and distributed to nurseries to keep this line alive. There's also one clone planted next to the original. I was just idly wondering how close to the original. It's not super close. Like, when you see pictures of the original tree, you can't see the other tree in the picture. Oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, I presume they probably have some ground-level barriers involved as well. 
There are some interesting side benefits to the cloning work done from the original tree. So prior to this project, any Bramley tree that was grown outside of the original site was, of course, a grafted cutting. And most were grafted cuttings taken from prior grafted cuttings. So over time, the flavor of the resulting apples had faded a little bit. But the cloned trees taste just like the original, and by some accounts, even better, because they are young trees, so they're producing sweeter fruit, and they have more vitamin C than the grafted ones. The clone trees have a more compact shape. Growers who have received the cloned saplings have often expressed doubt about them initially, saying they look kind of like tomato plants. (laughs) And then they are just happily surprised at how rapidly they mature and how hardy they are. And they're really, really impressive fruit production. In 2009, in honor of the tree's bicentennial, there was a huge celebration and a stained glass window featuring the tree was designed by Helen Whitaker of Barley Studios, York. This was dedicated in the Southminster Cathedral. Coming up, we'll talk about some ongoing issues with the tree and efforts that are being made to take care of it. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. In recent years, the original Bramley tree has continued to have some challenges. Nancy Harrison, the woman we mentioned that's been caretaking it for so long, died in 2014 at the age of 94, and her nephew, Colson Howard, became the owner and steward of the tree. 
While Howard, who was 55 when his aunt died, kept a garden, he did not feel qualified to care for a historic tree, especially one that everyone knows has serious issues. So he got assistance from tree experts, many of whom had also helped his aunt and shown the tree a great deal of care over the years. In 2016, the BBC reported on the honey fungus problem, which was deemed untreatable. Howard told the news outlet, quote, It's all very sad. The tree has honey fungus, and I have asked everybody if there is a treatment. All the advice seems to be that it is fatal. In the long term, once it has died, I would like to preserve the tree where it stands for as long as possible. As an aside, many mentions of this tree suggest the 20 teens as the time when it developed honey fungus, but the University of Nottingham lists the 1990s, and for them to have cultivated fully mature trees, that earlier date makes a lot more sense. Yeah, it gets a little confused in the telling sometimes. Uh, Professor Ted Cocking, who we mentioned before, he worked on the cloning project, and he works on the ongoing care of the tree, told the press, quote, It looks as though it is going to die, although we can never be 100% certain with a tree. It is a great shame. Miss Harrison devoted most of her life to looking after the tree and entertaining people who came from all over the world to visit the tree. Even if it is dying, we all want it to die with dignity. It needs to be nursed in its terminal years. In 2018, Nottingham Trent University acquired the property where the tree is and its two cottages to expand its student housing. And in the process, the university also became the custodian of the tree. And this has meant that the biology department can carefully monitor the tree's health and work to stave off the inevitable for as long as possible. In 2022, as part of the celebration of Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales began a project for the Queen's Green Canopy. And as part of this effort, 70 woodlands and 70 ancient trees in the UK were selected to be part of a network of growth called the Ancient Canopy. Those 70s were to mark the 70 years of the Queen's reign. And the Bramley tree was selected as one of the trees. Today, there are about 300 different growers growing Bramley apples in the UK, producing more than 83,000 tons of apples every year. This tree is still alive and is still producing fruit. It will eventually die, although it gets extraordinary care. It does still have honey fungus, and it's more than 200 years old. But another scientific effort is underway to preserve everything possible about the tree's DNA. There's a research project taking place at Nottingham Trent University. It's working to, quote, complete Bramley tree genomic DNA sequencing and mapping. And in addition to creating a scientific record of the tree's genetic makeup, this will help scientists identify the genetic information that creates some specific qualities in plants, which could maybe be useful in future agricultural efforts. The Bramley tree has its own blue historical plaque, which reads, The Bramley apple tree was grown from a pip by a young lady, Marianne Brailsford, between 1809 and 1815. It was thought it came from an apple grown on a tree at the bottom of her garden, now number 75, that's the street number. One seedling produced very fine apples in 1837 when the new occupier was Mr. Matthew Bramley. A local gardener, Henry Merriweather, later obtained permission to take cuttings from the tree, and it was duly registered as the Bramley seedling. 
So what I love about this is even though the butcher who lived at 75 Church Street, Southern Nottinghamshire in the mid-1800s did not plant or cultivate the Bramley tree and its apples, all he said was, sure, you can take it, uh, they still bear his name. <laughs> it's just kind of the least involved eponymous food story we can have. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is the Macintosh apple. This variety is well-known all over the world for its bright red skin with tinges of green and the crisp flesh, which has a flavor that's both sweet and tart. These are often eaten raw, but they're still also very popular for cooking because they break down easily under heat, so that shortens the cooking time. Yeah, you can bake an apple pie with those a little bit faster. John McIntosh was born on August 15, 1777 in Harpersfield, New York. His parents, Alexander and Juliet McIntosh, were Scottish immigrants. So you will sometimes see John called a Scottish Canadian because he moves in a moment, and sometimes an American Canadian. Just in case you see both, that's the explainer. Alexander McIntosh moved to Harpers Field four years before John was born, and he was a loyalist during the Revolutionary War. As a young man, John moved to the colony of Upper Canada. That's the precursor to modern-day Ontario. Upper Canada was formed in 1791 by the Constitutional Act of 1791, which separated what had been the province of Quebec into Upper Canada and Lower Canada. Lower Canada, which was largely Catholic and French-speaking, would later become modern-day Quebec. And then Upper Canada was mostly Protestant, English-speaking, and Loyalist. John is said to have made this move after a fallout with his family, which happened due to his relationship with a woman who was deemed unacceptable. Whoever that woman was, she does not appear to have gone with him. Yeah, that's, there's some question marks around that whole thing. <laughs> exactly when John McIntosh moved to Upper Canada is also a little fuzzy. Some accounts list his arrival as 1796. That's the earliest date you'll typically see. Others put it in the early 1800s. It seems possible, and I most historians have reconciled this uh, as a result of him moving from one location to another. So different municipalities' records are reflecting their own arrival dates. And depending on which one of those you reference, you will see something different. He did, uh, once he was there, marry a woman named Hannah Doran. And the Macintoshes, and I was not able to verify this, are said to have had 11 children, six boys, and five girls. I didn't find any info on, like, whether that was the true number, whether they all lived to adulthood, etc. One of his sons becomes very important in the story, though. The Dictionary of Canadian Biography cites the date of March 8th, 1813, as the day John purchased a lot of land in Matilda Township in the St. Lawrence Valley, which would eventually become the town of Dundala. This is the only place Holly saw that date. Everywhere, everywhere else seems to say this was in 1811. In any case, though, he started clearing the land to grow crops there, and it's said that in doing so, he found apple seedlings. This story has some hazy edges. Once again, this might have been one seedling, maybe multiple. It also might not have been John. It could have been his son, Alan, although an account from Alan himself credits his father. We'll get back to that in a minute. Some versions of this story say that John found quite a few seedlings in the brush while clearing this property and then replanted a lot of them, but that only one survived and was the foundation of the Macintosh apple line. As with the Bramley, we don't really know what kind of hybridization this original seedling had. Yeah, there are some efforts to figure it out we'll talk about in a minute. 
But as late as 1876, it kind of seems, if you're looking at some records, like there weren't any growers including Macintosh apples in their orchards in Ontario. That information comes from the Centennial Exposition of 1876, which took place in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And according to the Dictionary of Canadian Biography entry on John Macintosh, there was an exhibit there mounted by the Ontario fruit growers, but the Macintosh was not listed as a variety of fruit grown in the province. But there is some counter evidence to that, and we'll dig into it and get the story in Alan McIntosh's own words after we hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. On April 9th, 1874, so two years before the Centennial Expo we mentioned before the break, a column of entries about the apple tree appeared in the Argus and Patriot newspaper of Montpelier, Vermont, under the heading, The Macintosh Red Apple. And this column, and when I say that, I mean like a full column of the paper, not it's a a column written by someone, uh, opens with a letter from John's son, Alan McIntosh, dated February 15th of that year, outlining the differences between the Macintosh and another apple. That letter is long, but it includes a lot of information about the tree as known to the Macintosh family and other growers over what seems like a significant period of time, as well as the family's version of the origin story. So I'm going to read the whole thing. It reads as follows. 
Mr. Webster, dear sir, I received yours of the 10th asking relative to my apple and tree, whether it was the fameuse or some other variety. Sir, it appears that the fameuse is called here the snow apple. Now, the Macintosh reds are not the snow variety. In the first place, the meats of the two are not alike. The snow are much whiter. Again, the snow apple does not stay on the tree in the fall like the red variety. The snow falls with early frosts and the leaves also. The reds stay in the trees until the ground freezes and also the leaves. Again, the reds are very smooth while the snow has a very rough bark. Again, the limbs are very different. The snow are very liable to split down while the red does not for the reason it cannot. The limbs come out like pins, being smooth with no seam, both in crotch and big limbs the same. There is no tree like them in this respect. Again, the tree is a constant bearer. Now, sir, I am quite positive there is no man living who has even known this tree to fail one year of bearing a good crop of apples. I am 58 years old and do know for 50 years it has borne every year without fail a single year in that time. Also, the young trees are just as good bearers. Yes, sir, every year. Further, the frosts, which are frequent here in the climate in blossoming time, do not affect my reds in the least, while the snow or yet any other kind do in Canada. The red apple is much larger, some of them weighing a pound. Again, the snow variety will not keep near as long. Also, the snow loses its flavor and becomes insipid, while the red does not. It holds its flavor until midsummer perfectly. Now, sir, relative to the tree. It was set by my father where it now stands some 70 years ago with some 20 more which were taken up by the roadside or wherever he could find them and put in his garden. And in the course of 30 years, all the rest were dead and gone. I grafted this kind into some other varieties some 30 or 40 years ago, the tops of which are now smooth and bright as a young tree. Now I would say I have set an orchard of 1,200 trees of this variety, considering one of these trees worth four times as much as any other trees for this climate, for I have never known one of them to die from any cause. Yours respectfully, Alan McIntosh. So if that sounds like a sales pitch, sort of is. But this is not the start of the family selling the trees to other growers. In fact, there's a statement about the quality of the trees and Alan McIntosh's honesty in the same column of entries that's signed by 16 growers. And several of them include their own testimonials about the McIntosh red and their experiences growing them. So there were clearly orchards in Ontario that were growing these before 1876. One of these growers, William Arrington, states that he has been growing Macintosh Reds for five years. Another orchard, S.S. Clow and Son of Braintree, Vermont, said in their testimonial, quote, we understand that some parties are claiming they can furnish the same tree. Now, if they will furnish the same tree not raised in the Macintosh nursery, we will give $100. So clearly, not only was the Macintosh being grown and sold by other growers at the time, but it had a really good reputation that had reached well outside of Ontario. There are, we should point out, some inconsistencies in Alan's account with the historical record, though. In particular, he mentions that his father planted the first Macintosh 70 years prior, but John Macintosh didn't own that land until 1811 or 1813, depending on the source you look at. Either way, 60 seems like a more accurate number than 70. 
Uh, remember, this was uh, being written in, in 1874. But John himself had been dead for almost 30 years when Ellen's letter was published. So it's not entirely surprising that some of the historical dates probably just passed down through uh, the family verbally were noted incorrectly. The elder Macintosh's exact date of death is not uh, certain, but he died sometime between the fall of 1845 and the beginning of 1846. By the end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, the Macintosh's popularity grew rapidly. It was, as Alan's statement indicated, a hearty apple that survived the cold well and produced a lot of sweet fruit. One of the only flaws noted about it was that this fruit bruised easily. Some accounts credit the robust health of the Macintosh with enabling more orchardists to develop commercial farms. Allen died in 1899, so he was only able to see the early success of this apple that he had nursed and developed and promoted his whole life. And just as that success was reaching a crescendo, the original Macintosh apple tree was damaged by a fire. It didn't recover, and it eventually collapsed. And at the time, the tree was given a memorial headstone, placed at the base of the remaining stump, which reads, the site of the original Macintosh apple tree 1811 to 1906. Another stone marker was placed near the road in 1912, noting that the farm was the location of the original Macintosh apple tree. In 1962, a historical marker was placed outside the homestead by the Ontario Heritage Foundation. It lists 1811, not 1813, as the year John Macintosh acquired the land. The plaque's version of the story is brief, and it reads in full, quote, John Macintosh, 1777 to 1846. Macintosh's parents immigrated from Inverness, Scotland, to the Mohawk Valley, New York, and John moved to Upper Canada in 1796. In 1811, he acquired a farm near this site, and while clearing the land of second growth, discovered several apple seedlings. He transplanted these, and one bore the superior fruit, which became famous as the Macintosh Red Apple, John's son, Alan, established a nursery and promoted this new species extensively. It was widely acclaimed in Ontario and the northern United States and was introduced into British Columbia about 1910. Its popularity in North America and propagation in many lands attest the initiative and industry of John McIntosh and his descendants. There are some people who think John McIntosh gets a little too much credit in all of this and that Alan should be the one that everyone talks about, just FYI. In 1970, efforts were made to see if the McIntosh could be proven to have been a descendant of the famous or snow apple that Alan McIntosh referenced in his letter to the paper. A lot of apple experts have concluded that the famous, which was prolific in the region when John McIntosh moved there, had to be a genetic ancestor. But in 1970, W.H. Upshaw of the Horticultural Experiment Station in Vineland, Ontario, conducted experiments to see if he could cross the Famous with other breeds to get anything close to a Macintosh. But he never could. Based on his work, he listed the Fall St. Lawrence apple and the Alexander apple as likely progenitors. In 2001, another plaque was installed, this time by the Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada, this plaque also supports that 1811 date, and it reads, quote, In 1811, John McIntosh discovered an apple sapling on his land in Matilda Township. By bringing about its propagation and wide dissemination, he and his family had a significant impact on Canada's fruit-growing industry. 
The Macintosh Apple not only possessed a highly desirable taste, texture, aroma, and appearance, but was also ideally suited for growing in the country's colder climate. A number of well-known hybrids, such as the Cortland, Empire, Lobo, and Spartan, were derived from this fruit. The Macintosh has become one of the most popular varieties grown in Canada and abroad. Uh, This second plaque was not installed at the Macintosh farm, but instead at a nearby park, which is also named Macintosh Park. In 2011, the last known Macintosh apple tree that was a first-generation graft from the original tree was cut down on July 25th after it died. According to the owner of the property, Sandra Bexted, the summer had just been too dry for the aging tree. It produced some leaves before it died, but they fell off as it reached its end. The tree had been grown from cuttings from the original by Sandra's great-grandfather, Samuel Smith, who they still have that orchard and it still functions. Once again, scientists stepped in. Horticulturalists from the Upper Canada Village collected twigs from the tree before it was cut down and grafted them onto rootstock. Three of those took root, and they were headed to an orchard in the village once they grew large enough. The Macintosh farm, where it all began, has also had some challenges. In 2018, a story ran on CBC News about the state of the property. At that point, it was owned by a man from Austria named Gerd Skoff, who had bought it in 1987 and was eager to sell it. The orchard and the farmland were a lot to manage. He was also ready to move on. In addition to how big and hard to care for this property was, it was also just too remote. He wanted to live closer to a hospital as he and his wife got older in case they ever had any kind of emergency. At the time, he was asking for $875,000 Canadian dollars. According to a BBC report about the farm, that was equivalent to $675,000 U.S. or $514,000 British pounds, The property was listed as 5.5 hectares. That's a little bigger than 13 and a half acres. The farmhouse and its surrounding structures had really fallen into disrepair. There were frequent visitors from animals, unwanted animal visitors, we will say, and occasional human break-ins as well. The Scoffs moved away from the property in 2016, and it was still vacant, so it further deteriorated. According to a CBC Canada report on the land, most of Scoff's neighbors thought that his asking price was too high. Even other orchard owners in the area indicated that the property had been neglected for so long that it would just be really difficult even for a pro to get it up and running again. Scoff was not interested in working with the government on making the farm a tourist destination, and while he said he would not sell to the local or federal government, there were also no offers from those municipalities. Scoff cited his distrust of the government generally as his reason for not wanting to work with them. It is unclear to me if this is related to the historic marker that was placed in the park rather than on the property. I don't know if there was like a long history there, but uh, there have been public calls over the years for the Macintosh to be more fully recognized by the Ontario government as a historically significant part of the province's heritage. But so far, it has not been deemed important enough, even though it has appeared on Canadian money. We don't really know if anybody has ever made a real offer on this. A New York Times article about the Macintosh apple from 2021 states that the Macintosh farm is long gone. This cites the Smith Farm nearby as the oldest operating 
orchards still offering the variety. Oh, apples. Apples. Mm-hmm. Listen, do I always think I want to try to grow apple trees? Yes. Does it ever work? No. Um, I know who I am, and I am a lazy gardener. But I do have a listener mail about UV protection, one of my favorite things. <laughs> this is from our listener, Alyssa, who writes, Hey, ladies, been a fan for many years now. Thank you for all your research and well-delivered information. I just wanted to drop a quick note about UV protection. I'm a conductor for a freight rail company. I'm also what you might call pasty. I always do my best to use as much sun protection as possible, but it's not always possible to reapply throughout the day due to being in the middle of the yard and either not having it available or dirty hands that would break my skin out. My biggest suggestion is always wearing long sleeve shirts. As you mentioned, there are some with UV protection built in. Wearing long sleeves carries two benefits. One, keeping the sun off, obviously, but also keeping the grease and likely chemicals that are on the cars off my skin as well, hopefully. I often have people ask me how I can wear long sleeves in the summer, but I swear you aren't any hotter than you would be otherwise. If it's 95, you're going to be hot no matter what. It would be worse for it to be 95 and have a sunburn, and then you can't sleep at night too. I laughed when Holly described her get up for mowing the lawn and absolutely related. Sadly, I didn't really start properly protecting my skin until I got tattoos, but hopefully better late than never. Um, And then she sent the pet tax of her dog, Lucy, and her cat, Phoenix, um, the absolute very cutest, cutest, and they're together. And Phoenix is a tortie, so I'm surprised that she looks like a sweet little cuddler with a puppy, because sometimes torties can have a little attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, she also sent a picture of herself at work fully covered uh, in all of her long sleeve attitude. So the, that is a good point. L- listen, l- long sleeve clothes. Again, I, will, I, f- I feel like this is my soapbox lately. Everybody wears sun protection. Long sleeves work great. Um, if you would like to write us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. If you have not subscribed yet, it is easy peasy to do it on the iHeartRadio app uh, or wherever it is you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.